Shalhevet High School presents the Radical Moderation Podcast. Here's your host, Rabbi Ari Siegel. Hello and welcome to the Radical Moderation Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Siegel. Joining me is Maish Bain, president of the Orthodox Union and a partner at Ropes Gray. Maish, welcome back. Great to be here. So let's dive into the Radical Moderation part of the podcast. Um, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I will put out an, a suggestion. I think the Orthodox community broadly has a radical moderation problem, by which I mean, I think we are, we are, divide, we are joined in many ways on a lot of issues, but the divides between the different parts of the Orthodox community seem to be getting deeper and deeper to me. People further entrenching themselves into their positions, demonizing other sides, or writing them out of the camp to some degree, uh, in all directions, by the way. I don't think it's an equal opportunity uh, issue. And I guess my question is, A, do you see it that way? B, is what is the OU, can, what can the OU do, and what is the OU doing to heal some of that? Well, your second question is... Uh Predicated on the answers of the first, For sure. and, and, and I don't accept the first. Okay, good. I think, in fact, that the, the the Orthodox community is more unified and similar today than it's ever been in America. I think that what we look at is clearly a large number of very divisive issues, but compared to historical divisions, this is nothing. I mean, we don't have any longer today um, Satmer and Chabad marching down the streets to meet each other and have rows in the street and beating each other up. We don't have today a world in which families are so alien from each other, forget about whether they disagree, but they don't even know who they are. I mean, the, the commonality in American orthodoxy today far outweighs the divisions. I also would suggest that what we have done today is defined orthodoxy much broader than it ever was. And therefore, because of the broadness of the population that we're including, we're able to say it's much more diverse. But there are many people to, who we would claim and, and identify today as orthodox who 30 years ago would have identified themselves as non-orthodox. And therefore, the fact that they wouldn't have been unified within the community wouldn't be a a uh, deficiency in orthodoxy would be considered a split among Judaism. Mm -hmm. so, so your sense is there are some hot button issues, whether that's women's leadership or gender identity issues. I don't know, Israel maybe, I'm not sure. What, Israel's, Israel's, Israel's everybody. Totally, totally off the radar world, screen today as a divisive issue. What other issues are there that you, you see those dividing lines in terms of people asking questions about divinity of Torah where, or, or wondering different pieces? Where but, do you but, see but That's a good example. Lines? That's a good example. Divinity of Torah. When we say that there are groups who will challenge whether Torah came from Mount Sinai or not, and look how diverse the Orthodox community is, was there a time period in which we would have considered that to be an orthodox alternative? You know, in the OU, we would not view that as being an orthodox alternative. Right. We would define orthodoxy as premised on accepting the 13 foundations of faith. And that is the outer boundaries of what orthodoxy is. If we want to re redefine orthodoxy and then say, hey, look how divisive we are, then we could continue to do that in a very broad basis and continually lament the diversity and the opposition within it. And, and you don't see some of those things as just people asking questions, sort of what if I'm looking at this, is it possible that, I mean, I, I was on a panel recently with Rabbi Jeremy Weider, a Rosh Yeshiva at YU, at Yeshiva University, who has very clearly following Rishonim's thinking said, there are pieces of the Torah which 
are certainly divine, but they might not be literal. And there are a lot of people say it's not, you know, there are things in the Torah that are not meant to be taken literally. And Rabbi Weider says there are pieces of the Torah which are uh, nevuah, their their prophecy or their dreams, uh, stories that we hear about angels coming to see Avram Avinu. Uh, is that part of orthodoxy? Is that beyond the pale? Where does it, Where is that in the tent? That's not what we're talking about. When we're talking about people who would argue and people both being the lay people as well as the leadership who would say it's not a matter of, well, is this Parsha of the Torah part of the canon that is intended to be literal or not, which you'll find an enormous amount of library of, of, of debate over through the Rishonim and, and beyond. We're talking about whether the fundamental story of Maimon Sinai is literal, whether the fundamental story of Yitzhiz Mitzrayim is literal. Those are premises that are not acceptable within the spectrum of orthodoxy. And those who would entertain that as a realistic possibility, and I'm not saying that has anything to do with doubt. I think anybody who doesn't have questions, who doesn't have to reevaluate in their mind, well, I have these premises, are they legitimate or not, internally into my mind or in private conversations, that's certainly something that would be expected of every individual. No one is expecting an Orthodox Jew to be mindless and to just accept things without challenging them and rethinking them and at every stage in life rethinking them. That's very different than take, making pro public proclamations that this is what I believe, which is then saying I'm taking a public position against normative Orthodox dogma in a very broad base, that's no longer orthodox. And yet I still want to be considered orthodox, meaning I'm saying exactly. these are the things I don't believe that certain pieces that are core to our right. uh, faith happen. Look, we, we have to understand that, that, that one of the unique dimensions of orthodox Jewry, which is really unique in the broader spectrum of Judaism today, is that there is two ways to look at the Jewish people. One way is to look at the Jewish people as a nation, as a peoplehood. The second way is to look at it as a religion. We're unique in the world as being the only people that has both. Meaning, for example, if you're a Christian and you become an atheist, you're no longer a Christian. You cannot be an atheist Christian. You're no longer a Christian if you don't believe in Christian dogma. You could be an atheist Jew and you're still a Jew because you're part of the peoplehood of Judaism. Yeah. By the same token, Judaism as a movement is based on religion as well. So. The same thing is true of orthodoxy. You can't take the position that I am orthodox because I belong to an orthodox synagogue or because my parents were orthodox, but I don't believe in orthodoxy and still call yourself orthodox. So I have two follow-up questions to that. By the way, I do probably, I think Rav Shlomo Karabach used to say, if you go to a college campus and you ask somebody, what are you? And the person says Muslim, that you know, they're a Muslim. You say, what are you, a Christian, a Christian? If they say you're an atheist, you know, they're a Jew. That's what he used to say about college campuses. So let's let's talk about these synagogues and communities that, I, that you're referencing where, I don't know if they'd refer to themselves as open orthodox, um, but many years ago, you said they'd, they'd be happy, happily conservative Jews. I mean, I don't know if you said that explicitly, but I think that's what you're hinting at. What is orthodoxy to do about that at this point? Meaning, here you have these communities. They're attracted to the community, the Torah, the lifestyle, the mitzvot, the family, everything, all the wonderful things that we enjoy in the orthodox community. <clears throat> they have issues, whether it's with divinity of Torah fully, meaning they obviously, I think, believe the Torah is from Hashem, but maybe pieces that were, you know, evolved and came into it, or they see women that needing a, a greater leadership role and they want more gender equity. What do we do with those people? Do we say, 
you know, orthodoxy is not for you. And that's okay. We love you. You're wonderful. You're Jews. We love you as much as a brother and a sister, but you can't say you want to be in the club without believing these things. Or do we say, come into the club, just FYI, the things you believe are not yet, they're, they're not, not, not even yet. They're not part of what we believe, but we'd like to have you anyway. And on, you know, hopefully you'll come, cl- you know, you'll come over to the dogma side or, or the dogma baseline that we're looking for. Well, first of all, I don't think you can make broad uh, generalizations about any community. I think that, you know, to use the term such as open orthodoxy as a category that anybody who is affiliated with it falls within is, I think, improper and inaccurate. I think you have to look at every individual and every institution as its own on its own basis. I think, look, there, there is a general premise that the Orthodox Union would like to embrace the broadest spectrum possible. And the fact that an individual or even an institution has challenges, has questions, has independent views, I think is very tolerable and very much part of whom the Orthodox Union would like to include. There is, however, one distinction. And that is there's a distinction between the individual who says, you know, I have questions about this traditional approach, whether it's in thinking or in behavior. The person who has questions, the institution that has questions, is going to be embraced. However, if there's an individual or an institution who says, I have questions and I'm going to try to convince those of us who don't have those questions to join my direction, to join my movement, that's something that the Orthodox Union will have a problem with. And that's where the pushback comes from. Meaning, for example, if there's a traditional view of the role of women First of all, the first point that has to be made is that the Orthodox Union is as eager as possible to create the broadest spectrum of women's involvement in, in Orthodox community leadership. Part of the issue that has been engaged is very much because of that objective and that aspiration. And in fact, the Orthodox Union was intending and has now created a division of the, of its, of the institution geared exclusively towards that goal. But by the same token, we're simultaneously committed to rabbinic leadership and rabbinic decision-making as part of our process. And historically, and we continue to have rabbis who are the poskim of the Orthodox Union. And, you know, it's an interesting thing we talk about, about how we choose who a posek is in our community, which I think is an incredibly market-driven process, which has tremendous legitimacy. But our goal was, therefore, since we wanted to be as progressive as we could be, we had to go to the poskim to get the outer parameters of what would be acceptable. Now, had there been an individual who was behaving outside of those parameters on their own basis, I don't think we could have taken any action or made any comment. But when there is an institution that says, we want to create a movement inconsistent with the Orthodox Union's directive, then there has to be a question raised. So this is, so I think we're getting to the heart of the matter. Let's, let's just articulate for the listeners what we're talking about, I think, is there recently there was an issue with women's clergy within the Orthodox community, a number of synagogues uh, within the OU, OU umbrella, uh, the modern Orthodox world, were, call, were, were hiring female clergy and ordaining them and giving them titles. The, the synagogues weren't ordaining them, but there were institutions ordaining them. And so it seemed you're saying rather than being a particular synagogue that was saying, hey, we need a female leader here, they were turning it into something bigger. And it was that, it was that shift from individual shul making a decision for itself moving it into something of a, you called it a movement, that was the issue that the Orthodox Union had. So are you, are you saying that <clears throat> in a given synagogue or community, if the rabbi felt strongly that, hey, we need to have 
you know, there are women in this community. They're looking for a, a leader and a role model who looks like them. That's what we want in leaders. We want to look at a leader and see someone who's the best version of ourselves that we can emulate. And so we look and I, and we look at the rabbinic leadership and that's wonderful, but we need some female leadership. And if a rabbi hired a female clergy member, again, let's put titles aside for a minute, you'd be fine, meaning the OU would be fine with that. It's, it's when it turns into something bigger. I, first of all, I, I think there's a distinction between being fine with something and pushing back against something. I don't know that we'd be fine with whatever a rabbi would do in their respective community. The question is how much we would push back. And I think that there is a respect for rabbinic autonomy and a respect for the, the rabbi of a community to be able to evaluate what's in the best interest of his community and his congregants. And that we have tremendous deference towards, even if we are not comfortable with it, even if we don't agree with it. The need for pushback, however, is when there is not just a rabbi making a decision for his congregants, but a group that is trying to advocate this is the way orthodoxy should now become. Huh. Wow. So uh, allow me to suggest, I don't think the OU, I think I have full respect. I wrote a piece on this after the OU published its opinion, even if I don't agree, it's not even from my place in some ways to disagree with the rabbanim and the poskim you had on your on your. Uh, on your decision-making there. I don't know that the public understands the nuance of what you just said. I think the sense was that the OU did not like what some rabbis were doing on an individual level. Maybe there were a few of them. And so if the postkim and the OU doesn't like the direction and these are a little bit more progressive and they're a little bit more open orthodox, we're gonna shut that down. As opposed to, hey, it was fine when you were doing it on your own. You had your own strategy about what worked for your community. And now you're turning it into a hashkafa for the entire, a worldview for the entire Orthodox community. I'm not sure there's a sense out there that that's what you were getting at. And that's why the community is so fortunate to have people like Ari Siegel doing podcasts <laughs> that are going to allow the community to understand exactly what's going on if they don't already. Have you spoken to some of these rabbis? I, mean, I, I know you've spoken to some of these rabbis, I assume. Um, I, I, I would... What you're suggesting would be a very interesting model for our community in terms of dialogue. You said earlier, there's so much that, that unites us now. The issues are actually far less. They're just these hot button issues. And in some way, these hot button issues, whether it's women in the clergy or how synagogues engage with the LGBT community, which is increasingly becoming a problem, certainly in some Orthodox circles, even in the centrist Orthodox circles, people, whether it's children or cousins or nieces or nephews, uh, are are are, are uh, being open about their challenges with this issue. And is it your suggestion that Schultz should just kind of, the rabbis there and the leadership there should make decisions, obviously uh, with the rabbis' halachic guidance and with uh, guidance from others uh, who, who have knowledge, but choose what's best for your community. Just don't make it into orthodoxy believes that LGBTQ Jews are, you know, no problem. It's not a big deal. And women should obviously be clergy equal to men. And you don't make it into a huge thing. Just you pick what you're doing for your community. And the same thing with the Haredi community, meaning if you want more chumras for your community, go, get, like, go for it. What do I care? It's a strategy. You want to engage your community more. Well, look, I, I think if we look through the synagogues in America, there are enormous numbers of practices that normative OU policy would find an anathema and would find offensive that no one has ever talked about. So I think that that is a reflection. Care to give an example? For example, would be a practice of the rabbi of the synagogue standing outside after Donu Shabbos morning, kissing the women as they leave, saying good Shabbos, which the OU would find very problematic. 
we're not taking out kolkores and, and selling shuls unless the rabbi stops that practice and we're going to terminate membership. Hmm. That's a shul, a private, if there would be a group of rabbis who would say, we're starting a new movement, encouraging all rabbis to do this practice, we'd have to push back. Uh-huh. Very interesting. Let's talk about you. And I think you made a great point about open orthodoxy and not painting it with such a broad brush stroke, which I think a lot of people do. I've seen blog posts. And, you know, if anyone who identifies themselves as open orthodox is sort of automatically put in the category of not religious by a lot of people. And your point is, no, you have to take each person who as who they are, meaning different people within that movement have different uh, philosophies. I find that sometimes that's some of the challenge here. You have rabbis you know, I, I live in Los Angeles. Rav Yosef Konevsky is there. He's He is one of the ch- finest human beings I've ever met and a tremendous Yodea Sefer. I mean, he knows, sorry for my listeners, he knows a lot of Torah. He's really steeped in Torah knowledge. And for him, uh, this really is something that he believes deeply is what his community needs. And there's sort of an automatic knee-jerk reaction by the rest of the Orthodox community to say, no, you're only doing this because you're open Orthodox and open Orthodoxy isn't religious. And I think his response to some degree is, no, this is a worldview. This is an appropriate hashkafa within the Orthodox community. He feels like almost the only way to fight the people who say that he's not religious is to point to sources and say, no, this was this is within our tradition. And... If someone like you would say, hey, no, he's Orthodox. I've met the guy. He, he's from, he wants his community to grow in love of God, in love of Torah, in observance of mitzvot. That's what his career has been all about. He just thinks that there needs to be a woman role model for his community. He's not saying for everybody. I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested in asking Rabbi Konevsky. I think he might respond differently and say, okay. Fine, if you wanted me to call it a strategy, it's a strategy. I'm only calling it a hashkafa, so half of the world, you know, the Orthodox world doesn't kill me. No, I'm certainly not going to talk about individuals. I understand. Or individuals I mean, in general. I, I think in, in general, uh, rabbis have historically, continually tailored their practices and the standards of their community to address the needs of their particular community. Communities range dramatically in terms of background, cultural inclinations, um, interests, and and the like. And rabbis have an affirmative duty to make sure that their customs and their approaches are tailored to their community. I think that we have a, a challenge today that in the age of media and blogs and internet, information is so widely distributed that very often you'll have a local community that might intend it to be private or tailored that suddenly becomes a worldwide phenomena. And that creates a pressure because just as much as the individual community may not be looking to expand its view beyond itself, so too the OU has to make sure that it doesn't. Hmm. So there is a tension that's created perhaps beyond the eagerness of either side, but put into a difficult situation, each side is probably going to do what they think they need to do. It's interesting. It's like moments after Shabbos, sermons are posted or what was said in Shul is posted or a flyer for an event is posted, which is mostly supposed to be for communities, but it's on Facebook and then you're done. Exactly. It's off to the races. So we're challenged with a new phenomenon that we have to learn how to accommodate and deal with. Very interesting. Uh, I, I don't know if you're, what your involvement is uh, relative to the Israeli chief rabbinate. Is that? I'm jumping from national you're, you're, to you're international. Getting, you're getting beyond my Beyond arena. your pay grade. Right. Okay, so let's let me let me get back to America and domestic issues. We're often criticized in the now. Let's talk about the broader Orthodox community as a whole. We're often criticized for 
uh, a lack of commitment to social justice. Meaning people look at the Orthodox community and say, hey, you've got it made in terms of Torah, in terms of prayer, in terms of uh, living a, a, a Jewish life that's, that has continuity. I mean, everybody looks at us with envious eyes, the people I know in the other movements. But they do look at us and say, while you're winning that battle, I, they think we're losing the war. Uh, and the war is to make the world a better place. Meaning Hashem, God, gave us the mitzvot, the commandments, to be better people, to make the world better. And so, yes, you've sort of, you guys own that space, but you're almost lost in the weeds, is what I think some of the other denominations would say to us. How would you respond to that? I think you have to be careful in how you describe what the ultimate purpose is. The ultimate purpose is not to change the world. The ultimate purpose is for the world to get closer to God and for the, the relationship between God and humanity to be more intense and more real. Social justice is an avenue to accomplish that. We have to care for each other. We have to worry about each other. Just as much as blowing a chauffeur or eating matzah on Passover is a vehicle to become closer to God. There has to be a strategy decided on by each community as to what will result in that effusive and significant and delicious relationship that we're all eager to create with God. Now, pursuing social justice in a vacuum without looking at its impact is a little bit short-sighted because that's not the purpose of affecting the world or engaging in the world. And therefore, what you have to think about is today, in our current dynamic, in the current status of Orthodox Jewry within the world, within society, with all of the external challenges that we confront and external influences, to retain an identity, to retain an internal uh, relationship to Torah and mitzvahs, which you've commented we're doing pretty well at, of course we want to be involved in the broader world. And of course we want to care about every human being. But how do we most likely retain our community's focus on God and our relationship with God? Now, when we talk about social justice and its involvement, there is a net sum, zero sum in terms of our focus and allocation of resources. And I don't mean resources in terms of money, I mean resources in terms of attention and time. So if we would say, well, let's get involved in X, Y, Z without compromising our focus on Torah, our focus on davening, our focus on mitzvos, our focus on taking care of our families, hey, that's something that we should be definitely exploring. But very often what I'm finding is that the arguments being made by those who are neglecting Torah study or are neglecting prayer and saying, I'm focusing on these external worldwide issues, saving the dolphins, ecology, which are all values in Torah. But if I have a limited amount of time to deal with my kids, to deal with my school, to deal with my community, what has to have priority today? Yeah, it sounds like you're articulating a continuum which is sort of, on the one hand, there's ritual observance, deep commitment there. And on the other end of the continuum is the social justice uh, piece. And it sounds like the Orthodox community, each of the ortho pieces of the Orthodox community are trying to grapple with where do we fall on that continuum. Some parts of the community are all the way on the side of ritual observance with obviously a deep dedication to humanity. They just, they're investing 99.9% .9 of their time in that. And some Orthodox communities see it, you know, on almost on the, the reverse side or, or somewhere towards the middle of that continuum. And and would you say that, that there's sort of, I, I assume you wouldn't say that there's an objective right place or that 
we need all of those different pieces of the Orthodox community to have different parts of our community engaged in different, you know, endeavors. I sometimes look at our community and everyone sees divisiveness. In some ways, I almost see a symphony might be too poetic, but, you know, you have the Haredi community. They represent a very particular hashkafa. You have the Hasidic community. They rent, represent a beautiful hashkafa. You have, uh, you know, the yeshivish community. You have modern. You have open. I think everyone is trying to find that balance, and it allows for so many different voices within the Orthodox community to be able to sing that kind of song together where we have the Torah commitment. We have increased learning that we've never had before. We have more social justice probably within the Orthodox community than we've had in a long time. People doing chesed all over the place, not just for the Jewish community, but outside. And so I think you're right. You said before, like, we think there's so many arguments, but those are just hot button issues. We're on, we're on board together for most of this stuff. It sounds really great. <laughs> and, and I wish I would be able to agree with you entirely. And certainly in concept, I do. But the flaw that we have is that notwithstanding the fact that the variety of approaches to Torah Judaism are many, and they all have roles and require communities that abide by them. But what we're lacking, and this is across the spectrum, is an honest reevaluation of the impact of the different strategies. And I'm finding, and this is one of the uh, arenas that the Orthodox Union is engaged in, is are we able to create a culture in which we reevaluate premises and reevaluate approaches and see what the consequences of them are. And there are practices that many communities engage in that if we would take them through the analysis, we'd find that the ultimate result is not what you're, you would say the goal of that practice is. And therefore, we should be reevaluating them. And I think there have been some reevaluations. I think currently, for example, on the right wing of the spectrum, there is a greater engagement in secular studies than, than had been particularly post-high school secular studies. There has been a revaluation of integration into society on an economic basis than there used to be, and I think that was a result of a revaluation. I think in the modern community, from the time I was a child to today, there has been an enormous reevaluation. When I was a child, very, very few people graduated high school and continued to learn Torah, and today's, in our community, it's, 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 it's ubiquitous yeah. that we have children doing that, because we realized that having children study Torah through 11th or 12th grade and then no, no longer, just led to a disaster in terms of long-term commitment and religious growth. So in all of these arenas that you've described and all of these different alternatives, they all would work if all of them would be open to continual reevaluation and reassessment. It's interesting, and this goes back to a little bit our conversation about strategy versus hashkafa, which, you know, sort of a saying this is part of the tradition within Judaism. I think to some degree it's hard to reevaluate once you've announced that something is a hashkafa, meaning this is the way Judaism was meant to be and that's how we have to be. It's, it's very hard then to say, hey, we've done some evaluation and numbers and it's not working the way we thought it was working in any of the streams, because then you're saying, you know, it's okay, so practical results, you're going to choose practical results and data over what Judaism stands for. Whereas if you see these things as strategies, how can we get each of the communities closer to, to God, to bringing God closer to us in the world and learning more Torah, you can look at data and say, is this strategy helping us to achieve that in a, in a most effective and impactful way? So it's an interesting uh, piece. All right, let's close out with one last question. Um, uh, this is go it's a little bit dated, but 2013, the Pew Research Study comes out and it shows that orthodoxy is growing leaps and bounds and the other denominations are getting smaller. Uh, putting aside any initial, I think, triumphalism that the orthodox community had and people realize some of it's due to the birth rate, some of it's due to good things we're doing um, and some of the failings of the other <coughs> denominations. 
what does that mean for orthodoxy? Meaning, it, is there a point where if we became the majority, you see a difference in how orthodoxy should operate? How should we be inter- engaging with the other denominations? Is there a change uh, in how we should engage with them now that we're growing and there's a shrinking there? Well, I, I think that there is a change and the change has started and is continuing. Um, I made a presentation last year to a um, a group of secular Jewish intellectuals, and I was explaining to them that they had a premised view, which they all agreed they had, of the Orthodox community as being isolationist and self-righteous and opinionated. And I commented that that was a result of a multi-century attack against Torah and Orthodox Judaism of the rest of the Jewish community. And there was a very clear effort made by the non-Orthodox community to obliterate Torah and mitzvahs as part of the Jewish identity. That war is over. That war is no longer taking place. Not necessarily because Orthodoxy won, but more so because the alternative dogmas have weakened to the degree that they no longer wage that war. The result of that is that the Orthodox community is no longer as suspicious and as um, segregationist as they used to be. Therefore, you're finding on a very, very active basis more and more Orthodox Jews involved in the larger communal-wide organizations, such as APAC, such as federations, because there is no longer the same defensiveness that there used to be. As the Orthodox community grows on a percentage basis, which is a tragedy because the percentage growth is at the expense of the rest of the Jewish people, which is very, very tragic, the Orthodox community by necessity is assuming a greater role in the broader spectrum of Jewish life. And that will continue inevitably. In in addition, what we're discovering, which we all know, is that the Orthodox community is producing generations of highly educated, highly sophisticated people who are coming out of our schools and our yeshivas who are capable of dealing with the outside world in a very capable and, and very sophisticated way. And that will also allow them and allow us as a community to play a much more active role in areas beyond our immediate concern. Do you see any change in the uh, policy about interdenominational rabbinic speeches? I know that, you know, within Orthodox Judaism, you'll find at this point Orthodox Jews collaborating with non-Orthodox Jews, whether it's APAC, as you mentioned, or Federation. You'll actually find Orthodox rabbis sharing a pulpit with a Christian pastor or an imam, you know, when when there's mutually aligned uh, interests. But it's rare that you'll find a Orthodox uh, rabbi, Orthodox figure on the same panel as a non-Orthodox figure. And I understand, as you mentioned, for many, many years, there was a real fear because the core of Orthodoxy was being undermined. People were saying, you know, you're sort of these, you're uh, antiquated and you're, you're, you're back in the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages. At this point, that's not, there's no sense of that anymore. It feels very, very muted. Is, do you have any say or any thoughts about whether there'd be a place or time for some interdenominational discussion of Torah? Well, first of all, let's, let's go back to your question, which is I'm not sure that in normative orthodoxy, there are um, joint ritualistic uh, events that join orthodox rabbis with imams or or pastors of other religions. So I think that there has been historically, and there continues to be, interaction with other religions as well as among denominations of of Judaism on non-ritual, non-religious items. And that will continue and has always been the case. I don't think normative orthodoxy yet embraces interreligious religious experiences. And I don't think that they will engage in interreligious experiences among denominations. I think it's critically important that there be ongoing interaction on social issues, on security issues, on issues regarding Israel. But when you have a view of God and a view of Torah that is fundamentally inconsistent, incompatible, 
to give one a recognition, forget about the threat to orthodoxy, but we still have to be committed to truths and to give legitimacy, whether it be to them or to ourselves, that there is an alternative to what we perceive God to be, to what we believe Torah to be. I think that there's going to be a, a continual, probably, you know, through our lifetime, resistance to that being a legitimate form of expression. But you'd say recognize the person, but not their views. Oh, certainly the person. The person is a, 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 a human being, deserves respect, deserves interaction, deserves care and love. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the sharing of ideas in that context. Well, Maish, thank you for joining us. This was really uh, in, enlightening and invigorating. I hope uh, you'll, be, you'll be willing to come back as a guest. I hope it wasn't too much, uh, too intense. Uh, thank you for listening. This has been Ari Siegel with the, Rad- with the Radical Moderation Podcast. I'm with Maish Bain, president of the OU, partner at Ropes Gray. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please give us five stars so that other people can enjoy it as well.